This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore and I'm your host. This week, I was originally planning on releasing another episode that Dr. Holly Oxhandler had been a guest host on. We have a couple more from her that I'm excited to share with you, but just in kind of the past week, uh, as I guess most of you probably know, if you're a fan of the show, you're kind of at least have some some touch with the mental health kind of world, um, and you know some of this made bigger headlines than just that. But there was obviously the uh, apparent suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, and then the CDC released a report as well that said that suicide rates have been increasing in every state in the United States. And so, um, I don't know about you, it may just be kind of the corner of the internet that I inhabit, but just a lot of talking about suicide this past week and suicide prevention and uh, how we talk about suicide and things like that. Um, so I thought I'd do something a little bit different so I'm actually going to rebroadcast an episode that we recorded uh, sometime in early 2017 uh, that we had originally released sometime in kind of the spring of 2017, so about a year ago. But it is an episode on suicide prevention. Uh, Steve was still on as co-host, and then you'll hear from Dr. Jonathan Singer and Dr. Sherry Moloch, who both have a lot of great advice to share and things to say kind of about the topics of suicide prevention in church settings or in just communities in general or things like that. So I thought that I would share that for either new listeners who maybe weren't around when we did that episode or long-term listeners who wanted to kind of get a refresher or to hear some of that conversation again. I know it's a conversation that's on a lot of people's hearts and minds right now. So I also just wanted to take a second uh, and say... You know, for those of us in kind of the the helping fields or, you know, advocacy or ministry or mental health or kind of anything like that, um, those of us who work in kind of those compassionate helping professions, um, I just wanted to, you know, take a second and remind folks that it's it's good to take care of other people, obviously, but to make sure that you're also taking care of yourself, especially in kind of a week where a lot has happened kind of all at once. I know that like I mentioned, a lot of what I was seeing and reading had to do with suicide. Um, even, you know, Friday I tweeted kind of a whole bunch of things, kind of some thoughts about suicide and our responses to it. And then, you know, I was doing counseling that day. So, um, saw some clients and then, you know, had people reaching out to me because they know that I work in suicide a lot. And so they wanted to ask some questions or things like that, which all of which is great, all of which um, I guess isn't great, but is, you know, the area that I inhabit. And that's, um, it's an honor to be kind of a person that people reach out to. Uh, but, you know, at that Friday night, I, we had some friends over 
and I put my phone down and didn't pick it up for several hours just while we had friends over. We were playing games and they were seeing our new baby and stuff like that and um, it wasn't until I picked it up again right before we went to bed that I kind of remembered all of what was going on and uh, thought about what kind of a blessing that had been to kind of set some things aside for a couple hours and just take care of myself, do some things that were refueling for me. Um, so make sure that you're taking care of yourself if you need that as well. Um, or even if you think you don't need it, you probably should uh, take care of yourself a little more. So make sure that even if you're, you know, if you're listening to this because you like helping people or you feel passionate about mental health or ministry or things like that, make sure you're taking some time for yourself as well. One last thing I want to recommend, and I'll drop a link in the show notes to it, but uh, our friends from the Jedi Council podcast, who we had them on as guests uh, a couple weeks ago, um, they put out an episode kind of Friday night, uh, I believe it was, or maybe it was Saturday night, uh, one of those two days, just a short, you know, 20-minute episode, uh, just kind of checking in and seeing how people were doing and, you know, giving some quick thoughts and pointers. Um, they both are heavily involved in kind of suicide prevention and doing some research and things like that. So I'll drop that link in the show notes. Make sure you check that out. Uh, later this week, I will rebroadcast some other episodes that we've done relating to suicide prevention. I think there's at least one bonus episode that's just me that is about suicide prevention resources, things like that. So be on the lookout for that. If you're subscribed, it'll uh, automatically load right into your podcast listener there. So in the meantime, um, here is our episode. Remember, it was recorded back in 2017, so there won't be any immediately uh, relevant pop culture references or, or uh, more recent news references, I suppose would be a better way of saying that. And if you notice anything that you think, uh, you know, I think we mentioned that I'm the only one on the the call that doesn't have kids, you know, obviously I do now, but then I definitely didn't. So uh, just keep that in mind that this was recorded back in 2017, but all still fantastic information. Uh, I respect both these individuals and, you know, Steve's back on the call. So I respect all these individuals uh, immensely. So I hope that you're doing all right, taking time for yourself, uh, checking in on the people that you care and love about, and then I hope that you find this episode useful and maybe just a little bit helpful in kind of processing through some of how we help each other better in times like we're experiencing now. So uh, here it is, our episode on suicide prevention with Steve Austin back as co-host and featuring Dr. Jonathan Singer and Dr. Sherry Moloch. This episode of CXMH is brought to you by Stigma Fighters. Stigma Fighters is a nonprofit organization dedicated to giving people living with mental illness a voice. Share your story in a thousand words about living with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, PTSD, DID, and more at www.stigmafighters.com. Hey, and welcome back to the show, CXMH. Uh, my name is Robert Vore, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Steve Austin. Steve, how are you doing today? Hello, good sir. I'm doing great. Thank you. Excited to be here. This is going to be a, a very important and, I think, a very fruitful conversation, so I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. We are talking today about suicide prevention, specifically in churches or ministries or organizations like that. And we have two phenomenal guests. For the first time ever, we have two doctors with us, so super fancy on this episode. 
Uh, I should have laid out whatever the audio version is of like a cheese platter, I guess, uh, make it look nice. But we are joined by Dr. <laughs> Dr. Jonathan Singer. He's an associate professor of social work at Loyola University, Chicago, and a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in working with children and families. There's a pretty long bio that I pulled off online, but a lot of you might know him from the Social Work podcast that he hosts, which is a fantastic resource. And he's also one of the authors of Suicide in Schools, A Practitioner's Guide to Multi-Level Prevention, Assessment, Intervention, and Postvention, which is uh, a fantastic resource regarding suicide prevention as well. Dr. Singer, Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Really happy to be here. Excited to be able to have this conversation with you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Anything I missed in the intro there that you want to say about yourself? Uh, no, that was that was great. I, I say short bio. People can read it online. And yeah. let's just hope my, my small children don't run in during the during the during the interview. So <laughs> fair enough. And then we are also joined by Dr. Sherry Moloch, who is an associate professor and the director of clinical training in the Department of Psychology at the George Washington University in Washington, DC. She teaches undergraduate and doctoral courses in the field of clinical psychology and conducts research on the prevention of suicide and HIV in African-American adolescents and young adults, as well as quite the extensive bio there as well. Dr. Moloch, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for inviting me for this important topic. Absolutely. And I also noticed in your bio there that you and your husband are actually founding pastors of a church in Maryland. Is that right? Uh Uh-huh. The Beloved Community Church in Akakik, Maryland. Awesome. Awesome. So is there anything I missed about you before we start? No, but since Jonathan brought up children, my children are all adults now, but I have a four-year-old granddaughter, so I'm going to plug that in. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Steve has young children as well. I don't, uh, but that's all right. I'll be the odd man out here so far, but that's all right. You got Knox, buddy. Knox totally counts. That's true. I have a dog who sometimes you can hear jangling around when we record things when I'm at home. All right, so we are here to talk about suicide prevention, kind of on a large scale and on a small scale, but specifically... What we were hoping to talk about is uh, suicide prevention in churches or ministries or places of faith, uh, things like that, which can look a couple different ways. So let me start by posing the question to either one of you. What responsibilities do churches or ministries or communities of faith, what responsibility do they have in suicide prevention or do they have any? Um, so this is Sherry. So I, I think they have a lot mainly, and I'm sure um, Jonathan can jump in any time. One of the things, particularly in the African-American church, which is the church that I'm the most familiar with, um, people are more likely to go to the clergy person than any other mental health professional. And many, in the, at least in the African-American church, many people consider their clergy person to be their mental health, or at least consultant. So I think it's it's important to at least be somewhat knowledgeable about the warning signs of suicide and to be able to link people to services. Yeah, and I think that um, uh, sort of speaking more broadly, because um, I'm not familiar with uh, African-American churches per se. I'm Jewish, and so I, I've hung out in synagogues most of my life. Um, but um, I think that one of the important things around suicide prevention is that there's a historical – uh, issue around what it means uh, to life and death, what that means in a religious context. And so understanding what that means for a faith community, I think, is a really key component 
regardless of, of, of uh, what type of religious institution. And so even having that basic understanding is really important to the conversation about uh, suicide prevention. Yeah. And in your book, Suicide in Schools, which I recognize obviously is directed towards schools, but one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on today is because in, in reading it, it discusses things from kind of a I would say like a zoomed out view, right? Like a systems uh, perspective of suicide prevention. And then it also addresses things in a more individual level. But I think a lot of that applies to essentially any community that we're talking about, whether it's a youth group or a church or a college ministry or even a synagogue or things like that. So can you talk about kind of the systems perspective in in suicide prevention? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So a systems perspective means that you're looking at uh, not just what's happening at an individual level, right? What might be happening in terms of an individual's emotions or their personality style um, or their interactions with other people, but it it, it has to do with all of the um, different uh, organizations and, uh, um, well, systems that are involved in somebody's life. So, um, so you could have an individual in school, right? Uh, like a high school. And if you're only thinking about that person in terms of uh, what kind of person they are when they're around their peers in school, you're missing out on a huge part of their life. Um, they could have a very vibrant, active, and important uh, faith community that they are a part of. And when they're at school, they're one kind of person, but when they're in their faith community, they're a different kind of person. Um, and this can this can be good and bad, right? So this I'm, I, when I'm saying these things, I'm not I'm not pitting them against each other. Um, but but you also have other systems. So there's uh, there's the the juvenile court system. There's the child welfare system. Um, there's what we think of broadly in terms of like sports and hobbies, right? These kinds of extracurricular. There's family. Um, and and we can't forget the the larger systems around um, politics and um, the the cultural groups that people are are a part of. We we think about them in terms of ethnicity, right? So what is my ethnic identity? What is my group that I'm associated with? And and so a systemic understanding of suicide is really it's it's challenging at times. Um, for many reasons, one of which is because it's really hard to do rigorous systemic research. We tend to focus on one system and and one set of outcomes. And so if you want to go to the research to understand how things work, you, you tend to get, you know, one slice of the pie. But but it really is the best way, in my opinion, to think about suicide prevention, particularly in youth, because you never get a youth that is in isolation. They're always part of something and they're always in a context. And so understanding that context and their relationship to that context and what's working for them and what's not is essential in in suicide prevention. That's so good. And when we talk about different systems, different areas, uh, you even mentioned they're studying different uh, ethnicities and things like that. Dr. Moloch, a lot of your research, I'm looking at your publications here, and they are focused a lot on uh, African-American churches, specifically maybe even African-American adolescents, what role does that play in suicide prevention when we're thinking about it from kind of a large-scale view? I really love what um, what uh, Dr. Singer said, so I, I completely agree with him that 
particularly for young people, they're, they're in multiple contexts. And so sometimes people will talk to me about wanting to be um, culturally competent. And I always say, well, you really want to be contextually competent because people are embedded in a lot of different cultures. And some of that has to do with race and ethnicity, but that also has to do with age groups and, as he mentioned, school groups and um, faith-based groups. I think one of the things that's challenging is that everyone wants to have kind of an intervention or prevention program that's only gonna that's going to work in one context and behave as if it will work or be helpful in all contexts. And so I also really agree with him that you really want to try to capture as many contexts as youth interacting as possible and figure out how that can be coordinated as well. I think for African-American youth, the school context is important, but sometimes the school context is also the place um, where children of color may feel that they are um, unfairly evaluated. And so the advantage of doing a prevention or intervention in a faith-based community is that there's no evaluative component in it. You're not really being judged. There's no academic rhetoric that you have to worry about. On the other hand, as he, as he also mentioned, um, some uh, faith communities, and the Black church in particular has a history of this, also has stigma associated with suicide. So the challenge is, how can you take what's, what could be a natural support system for youth and turn that into a place where there isn't going to be the suicidal thoughts or behaviors are not going to be stigmatized? And so one of the things that my research focuses on is not just linking youth to services, but changing norms in the church community so that it no longer becomes stigmatized to talk about suicide. And it's no longer stigmatized for young people to ask for help. And so that's we, so we try to look at it from a two-pronged approach in that way. We also try to look at broaden what kids think uh, are natural helpers. So in, a different, in addition to other youth, we also try to use youth leaders, um, perhaps pastors of the church, and we ask the youth in the churches, Who's a helper to you? And then those are the people that we try to aim our training towards. This is all such fantastic info. So let either one of you feel free to, to jump in and answer this one. But let's, on a practical level here, let's say I am a pastor or in church leadership. I have no personal experience with mental illness at all. Um, and I, I maybe I don't even... Where do I even begin? Where do I even start with suicide prevention from a church perspective? Um, I can jump in first. <laughs> so I think one important um, uh, information that, that pastors need to know, there are toolkits that are available for specifically designed for um, people who are clergy or for faith communities, and they're not based on denomination or faith tradition. So you could be Jewish, you could be Buddhist, you could be... Muslim, you could be a Christian. And one really important source of resources um, is an organization called SPRC, which is the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. It's got a, um, a website at www.sprc.org. It's excellent. I like it. I'm kind of biased towards it because I'm also on their board, but I'm also biased because it probably, to me, has one of the most user-friendly uh, websites. So there's there are toolkits on there that are specifically designed for clergy. You can also, which I think is really critical, is for clergy to partner with people like Dr. Singer, myself, even if you have a local um, university nearby, because I think people in university settings or mental health professionals in the community are poised to kind of provide services or help or link people to services. And so I think sometimes clergy think they have to reinvent the wheel. You don't. There are resources out there that are available. 
I think it's important for faith uh, leaders to look at themselves as a member of a team. And so everybody on the team doesn't have to know about everything, but you need to do what you do well. I think in our own church, it just so happens that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. I don't know if you all know that. So yesterday in church, I preached a sermon about mental health seeking behaviors, and I preached a sermon about um, the importance of linking people to service. And I uh, later on this month, I'll preach a sermon about suicide prevention. So there, so even being aware of the key months where mental health issues might be highlighted is a good opportunity for clergy, for example, to learn more information about the mental health challenges, but also to do sermons, teachings on that. Because if you think about it, Saturday or Sunday, which is whatever your Sabbath is, you have a captive audience. It's a really good opportunity to provide people with information. And again, you don't have to be a walking encyclopedia. There are fact sheets that you can share with your congregation. Um, there's um, really critical linking people to services. You can have people come into your faith community and talk about these issues if you don't feel comfortable. So there's, lo- there's lots of tools out there. There's lots of people who are willing to come to your community and talk to you or them about that. I think it's just really important to take those first steps. The other thing why I think this is so important is because clergy more than anyone else can, again, change norms about help seeking and give the people in the community permission that it's okay to seek help. That's so interesting because I know that, and and we'll get into maybe some specific resources later, but like I run uh, QPR trainings for church right. staffs and things if they bring me in, but typically... I find people more open to do that, to, you know, bring it in as an optional thing or just for the staff or things like that. But you're even recommending a sermon focused around those things. What's the feedback from that normally? The reason why I say that is because I have been doing this work for 20 years. And so I'd say the first 10 years, we have a health fair or something. And in a way, you're preaching to the choir. Like the people who come to the health fair are already interested in this, already know about it already right. think it's important. So all the people that you need to reach aren't at the health fair. <laughs> um, if you train your staff, which is great, uh, QPR is a really good um, program and it's evidence-based and it's relatively easy to train. It's designed to be trained for the tr- people who use it. They don't have to be mental health professionals, so it's great. But if you train your staff and then no one ever comes to seek help because they think it's taboo or stigma, then right. you have this really great resource that no one will use. On the other hand, if you do it during the sermon or your reg- regular um, religious educational teaching moment, then people are there. They they have access to the information. If they don't want to use it. They don't have to use it. But you, you, you help reduce the stigma just by talking about it. And you talk about it in the way that you would normally talk about other things. So just like we would normally talk about feeding the homeless, um, we talk about our church is really big on preventing human trafficking and domestic violence. So just like we would talk about that, we would talk about this. Just like we would talk about feeding people around Thanksgiving, we're talking about, oh, so how can we get people to talk about mental health challenges? And the most, one of the most powerful things, uh, two years ago in our church, we had different people in the church talk about their mental health challenges. It's called telling our story. Well, you know, that was more impactful than anything I've ever said because people thought <laughs> people liked them saying, oh, um, and I, I can disclose this because she gets free permission. My youngest daughter was suffering from depression. At the time she was talking about this, she was about 16. Th- there was not a dry eye in the house. And more and more people came up to her and took the information, the brochures that we had, because they, then they thought it's okay. 
There's no shame involved in this. If a 16-year-old can talk about this, she talked about being in therapy, how helpful it was to her. Then other people came up too. People, uh, last month was autism awareness. We have a few families in our church. We have children on the spectrum. They got up and talked about that. So you have to give people permission to say, we, we can talk about this just like we would talk about you were diabetic. If we were talking about people with hypertension, we'll talk about people with depression. So you have to kind of make the conversation seem um, I don't know if I would use the word normalized, but it's not stigmatized. Well, and I think that that is a really, really important point. And um, I mean, Dr. Malik, everything that you are saying is so essentially important to suicide prevention. Because one of the things that you're doing is you are modeling what it means to be in a respected position and a position of uh, authority and say, this is not something we should be uh, fearing or shy away from, we need to step into this and we need to talk about this. And it gives other people permission to be like you. Right. And I think that this idea of mental health stigma in general, um, and I really like to use the word discrimination when Mm -hmm. I think about stigma, because there is a discrimination. Mm -hmm. And just like, just like we know about uh, the different, like racial bias or internalized homophobia or anything like that, there's there's a way in which our society has these values and norms that get internalized, and and you know there's public and private stigma, right? So there's a way in which somebody might say, well, you know, how can I be how can I be a strong black woman, right, and be part of this community if I'm also having thoughts of suicide, right? right. So you've got different. Um, uh, parts of who you are and say, I can't, I can't share this one part with my community because it doesn't fit. It doesn't right. fit the, uh, the, 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 the view. Um, how can I be, um, you know, not just a strong black woman, but how can I be any sort of leader in my community if right. I'm also depressed? Right? right. And those things aren't actually mutually excuse exclusive. Those of us right. in the mental health field know that when people are, having their hardest days, it's actually the days they're working the hardest, mm-hmm. right? And and being able to be out in a community that you love, that has uh, supports, and that you find comfort, um, and that you can be fully and authentically yourself. There's nothing more powerful, and there's, no, right. there's nothing that can um, uh, provide people with uh, reasons for living more powerfully than that. And so I think I think it's amazing and absolutely right on to have that happen as um, as part of, of of religious services on a Sunday, a Saturday, and throughout the year. Now, I completely agree, and I think that see that the the realization I think that both Dr. Singer and I have is we publish our research and we write our books, but the average person in the congregation is not going to read that. <laughs> no. And they're not going to go get it <laughs> unless we bring it to the church or something. But no. they're gonna, and they're going to be supportive. They'll go, that's nice. Yeah. But they're not going to really know or even recognize. One of these we talked about in church yesterday was we, people are so crisis focused. So we said, OK, so if we're trying to prevent suicide, then we don't want it to get to a crisis. So that's one reason why we have to talk about the signs all the time. And it's OK if you're you're erring on the side of being overly concerned or over magnifying someone's problem as opposed to under doing that. And so we, so what we're trying to do is make this part of our everyday conversation. Um, one of the most powerful things that happened in church yesterday was after the sermon, we had communion and um, one of the, the person, one of the ministers that was leading communion talked about her own struggles with depression. So that her talk was more impactful than the sermon. 
because mm-hmm. people saw, whoa, like, and, and I didn't know she was going to say that. I just asked her to lead communion that day. So mm. it was like, whoa. And so she spent, she wove that, her narrative into communion, which was amazing. <laughs> so That's um, amazing. I, I was like, whoa. And so, <laughs> But after we're after church, when we were fellowshipping, that's all people were talking about. And they were, you know, I've gotten two emails, two text messages a day for referrals for counseling. So that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to say, see, this is just like, you know, if you needed a new, if you needed a referral for a dentist, you would need a referral for a therapist. It would not be a big deal. And let me just jump in and say one other thing that I think is so beautiful about that, which is that. Whether it's implicit or explicit in the way that we see the world, right, the role of our faith and, and, and whatever else is in our worldview, um, if something is not consistent with our right. worldview, it's really hard to move along. So if I think that seeking mental health services is not consistent with my spiritual beliefs or, or, or sort of the, the values of my, my church community or my faith community – even if I personally think I think this would be helpful, it's harder to do it because you actually have an entire group of people that are saying no, whether that's actually true or not right. <laughs> is part of the issue. And so right. knowing that people are like, oh, that's great. Yeah, I go see a therapist or, you know, I've talked to so-and-so and that's great. And And in fact, the next step being what are the referrals for mental health services that are – kind of approved by your faith community to right. say this person um, is somebody that you can be fully yourself with. Mm-hmm. And that might mean that they do pastoral counseling, but they're totally on board with with working with folks with depression, suicide risk, or maybe somebody that's not trained in pastoral counseling, but is still essentially an ally, right? Is right. going to be supportive and is going to say, you can be you here. And, and right. so having that kind of stamp of approval is a really essential part, I think, for any faith community to have that, especially in suicide prevention. Yeah, I, I guess um, we're just going to be each other's fans because, <laughs> like, yes. yes. No, I was thinking as you were talking, I thought, so part of what we do in, with the faith community is we ask them to name who they think a helper is. Because part of the issue, too, as researchers, we sort of had this deified, deified view of who a real practitioner is. <laughs> so I kind of smile and go, well, that's great. But if someone's telling you that right now their their community norm is psychiatry is a no-no, then it is. Yep. yep. So mm. we can't start there. We have to say, okay, well, would you want to see your primary care physician? We know that um, Asian Americans, African Americans, and to some degree Latinos feel more comfortable getting psychotropic medication from a primary care physician. So at the end of the day, if that's who we can start with, okay. <laughs> okay, so. That's to, right, that's right. You know, okay, so so we're trying to figure out how can we maximize identifying as many helpers as possible. We're not going to refute prayer. I think prayer is powerful. But one of the things that we teach is prayer by itself isn't enough. And that doesn't, and nothing by itself. That's one of the things I talked about mm-hmm, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Nothing by itself is enough. So you have, you want to have multiple pro- approaches to how you help people. So friendships are important. Um, family support is important. But as you said, if someone thinks that um, going to a pastoral counselor is okay, but going to a psychotherapist is not, even though, to be honest with you, people who have a master's degree and PhDs and, and social work 
um, psychology um, and passive counseling probably have similar training. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but I don't care. I want, what I want to do is for you to go to someone who's qualified to help you. So it doesn't have to be me. It could be somebody else. I don't care. So we have to also be open on the other end, the mental health professionals and the research community to say, we don't have the, the answer to, we can't be one-stop shopping for people either. That it really mm-hmm. does take a team to do this. <laughs> I could jump in again because I've been a fan of your work for years, Dr. Moloch. Okay. But I I will let Steve and Robert jump in. <laughs> no, jump in. This is our favorite part. When when guests start bouncing back and forth off each other and we just get to back up and hit mute, do it. If you got something else to say, go for it. Yeah. Well, I think that um, you know, uh, Dr. Moloch's point about um sort of what somebody's degree or discipline is, isn't really the important thing. And I think that's just a general thing that's important to know. Um, you can have some of the best people in the world for crisis intervention are hotline workers, yeah. right? And these are volunteers most of the time who have no degree in mental health services, but they've gotten amazing training and they work with folks all the time who are in crisis, right? And so that's that's another resource that I'll just throw out here is that there's that everybody should be aware of the National Suicide Prevention yeah. Lifeline, Crisis Text Line, Trans Lifeline, the Trevor Project. These are all amazing resources um, that people uh, and there's the, sorry, there's also one for the VA. It's it's had some funding issues, but you know the, there are lots of crisis hotlines and and um, and increasingly crisis hotlines are doing preventative work. They, they actually want people to call in before the crisis is acute, right? And, and also, so, yeah, go I'm ahead. sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, if you're a loved one and you have a family member who's in crisis, you can also call those lines because they yes. can give you suggestions about what to do. Yes, that's exactly right. And and so these are these are you know Robert you you talked earlier about systems. So this is these are part of our systems of care. This is what we think about it. And you know you talk to folks who uh, are consumers of services and they'll debate how caring these systems can be, but that's the general term that we have for them is systems of care. And uh, and so crisis hotlines, um, uh, as well as uh, community mental health professionals, but really having these testimonials from folks in the community to say, this person was great. you know, And they're like, oh, well, but this person, isn't that person uh, like a counselor and not like a psychologist? Then it's important to say, you know what? This works. There's lots of similar training across all these disciplines, and I think that's another important thing to put out there. Mm-hmm. I agree. So you mentioned there some preventative work as well. So what we've talked about so far is kind of making it okay, giving permission for people to come and ask for help. But another aspect that we kind of want to be aware of is how we can be aware and and know what to look for so that we can kind of more on the active side of our part, make sure that we're checking in people, asking if they're okay, things like that. So can we talk some about risk factors and warning signs? And if I'm a pastor listening to this, I've never thought about suicide prevention before. I say, all right, I want to bring someone in to talk about it, but also I want to know what to do on, on my part in my daily interactions with people. Well, I'll just jump in with some general kind of risk factors, warning signs. Um, you know, one of the big things is um, uh, when there's been a significant change in the way somebody is. So if somebody is typically um, social 
and you know you see them uh, when they're fellowshipping mm-hmm. or you know for you know in synagogues like for the oneg after Shabbat and everybody's hang out and and they usually are, are, are the kinds of people that kind of hang out but but you see over time that they're not anymore they're withdrawing um, maybe they are hanging out but they're not really talking to folks or you get you hear other people saying hey this person seems a little down or this person's kind of losing their temper a lot, right? So there's a change in how they are. That's one thing to take seriously um, because we know that uh, changes in personality, um, especially around depression or irritability, um, those things can, uh, those count as risk factors for for suicide. Also, if you have people that are um, asking about methods, right? Does any, do you know anybody that has a gun? Do you, do you go out shooting? Um, uh, if you if if they ask about you know does it hurt right to cut yourself all these sorts of things that that might in the abstract sound sound odd but again these are the kinds of things where if somebody feels like they can kind of talk to their friends then having this community know okay well what is it that wait why are you asking about this what is what is your end goal with these sorts of things those are things to look out for you know with kids particularly you're you're looking at um, <coughs> Uh, it's important to understand that that depression can oftentimes look like irritability, and um, and so irritability, particularly with adolescents, if they're not sleeping well, that's a huge thing. Well, well, with anybody, lack of sleep is a huge thing, but particularly with adolescents, um, because they need they need so much more sleep than they get anyway. But um, if they're not sleeping, it's really hard for them to to think clearly, and we know that adolescents. Um, just neurologically struggle with getting to the f- <laughs> sort of the thinking part of their brain anyway. So, um, so those are some really important things to 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 be aware of if you are an adult in um, in a community of people. Yeah, I I completely agree with Dr. Singh. I think the only thing I'd probably add to that is that we know that um, youth who are in the LGBTQ community have higher risk of at least for attempts. Um, some of that is because they might be kind of sorting through their sexual identity, usually around adolescence, may not have come out to peers and or parents or may have come out and gotten a really negative reaction. I think because we're talking about faith communities, if they belong to a faith community that is not as accepting of different sexual orientations, and that may also be a source of stress for them. Yeah, and I think that's really good. If I can just follow up really quickly on that. Um Tied in with the the original question about systems, you know, one of the things that research on LGBTQ youth and, and youth suicide reduction is um, has shown that schools that have gay straight alliances, right, mm-hmm. where there there's actually a school environment that um, isn't just safer but is actually affirming, then they then youth report uh, less suicidal ideation, fewer attempts, and so if we think about the communities that people, the kids are in particularly, um, having those communities, uh, be affirming will address suicide risk for kids that aren't out, right. That are, that are maybe nine and 10 and thinking, why is it, you know, when I, when I think about holding hands with somebody, it's somebody of the same sex. Right. Um, and when I, when I dream of, of going to that dance, it's, it's with this other guy. Um, that they're not, their brains are not quite at the teenage level, so they might not be able to sort of piece together what's going on. But if they are in a community that has already been affirming, 
sexual identity, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, um, then they, they're not going to have to sort of butt heads against that. And it'll be much, much easier for them mm-hmm. to be accepting of themselves. Yep, I agree. So let me ask, if I you know, notice something might be wrong with someone and I ask and it, it, I find out one way or the other that maybe they are encountering a suicidal crisis or that they might be thinking of that, where do I go next? How do I find the right resources? We've mentioned the, the, the phone lines, the uh, crisis lines, things like that, but how do, I, how do I go about connecting them to someone in my community maybe who can help, right? Because a lot of us in that moment who aren't used to dealing with this kind of thing freeze and think, oh my gosh, I have no idea what to do. I've never encountered something Mm -hmm. like this. Where do I go? I think in faith, well, I think in general, if if, uh, this is a good good question, but it depends on what system you're in. (laughs) I was just thinking, where are you? Uh, Yes, yes, that's exactly the right question, yeah. So, So I think, you know, if you can find a trusted adult who kids feel comfortable with, I know in our churches, we try to identify, um, these are called gatekeepers, who are trusted adults right. or young adults who um, no, don't necessarily have mental health training, but know how to talk to kids. This is someone that the kids already trust and talk to and knows how to call them or link them to services. So that's where the programs like QPR would be really helpful. Um, I think there are peer support programs too. There's one called um, Sources of Strength. I don't know if you know about that, Dr. Singer, which is a peer support program. But mm-hmm. what all yeah. those have in common is you're going, you're talking to someone who's trusted. You're talking to someone who, even though they're surprised, are going to listen, which is really important, and not make judgments about you. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's right on having the um, somebody to talk to and knowing who that person is. And 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 Robert, I I, I think that your question is sort of coming from the lens of a, of a pastor or a minister or somebody and saying, okay, right, so I, right. I recognize somebody. Now what do I do? So here's the thing. You want to figure that out before right. you recognize them. Okay? <laughs> and all of this is, you know, Steve, you, you mentioned something early on, like what if I've never experienced any sort of mental health problems or what if I don't know anything about, and my hope is that by the time somebody gets to be the sort of kind of the leader of a community, this is not new, right? This right. is this is not something that is a surprise or the first time that it's happened. If for whatever reason somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, huh, I don't know if I know anybody that has struggled with depression or eating disorders or has engaged in self-harming behavior, I would suggest that that you should probably get to know folks in your community better. Because one of the myths is that this is not something that happens in my community. Yeah, this is not a problem in my church. Maybe other churches struggle with it, but no, we're good. Right. No, exactly. The statistics don't apply to us. Thanks anyway. Right, right, right. Exactly. And so, yeah. and so I just want to throw that out there because um, it does get back to this idea of, of preparing. And you can't prepare for everything and be fully on, you know, 100% on all the time. I mean, I know that when I was living in Austin, Texas, and I was – traveling around as part of this mobile crisis unit and I was doing suicide assessments all day, like doing a suicide assessment was like falling off a bike. Like it was so easy. Right. And then when I moved to doing more um, office based work and I was doing more family therapy and couples therapy, and I was um, doing fewer suicide assessments when I would have somebody that came in in a suicidal crisis, it took me a minute to kind of get back on the bike 
Now, if I go years without actually talking with somebody in a suicidal crisis, it would probably take me even longer. So I, I don't want to s- diminish sort of the, the stress and the tension around having somebody come to you and say, I'm, I've been I'm, I'm kind of thinking that that everybody would be better off if I weren't around. Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 it's totally reasonable for that person you know, for you as the, as the provider of the adult to be like, okay, this is a little freaking me out right now. Totally fine. You can say, um, I mean, I I won't go through the whole QPR thing, but like if you, if you've had training, you can pull out the brochure and, and look at that. You could also call a crisis hotline and you could say, Hey, I've got somebody in my office. They're this, you know, can, can we talk to them together? Can you, you know, can you help me through this? Like there, there are loads of resources. Nobody has ever, ever expected to manage a suicidal crisis by themselves. I I just want to piggyback on that because that's so critical. We have a, uh, an in-house training center at uh, George Washington University Department of Psychology. So our students, our doctoral students, see um, members of the community. And so at any given moment, we there's usually one or two clients who are having uh, suicide ideation anyway. So um, what I share with students when they have a suicidal client is this. So this is scary. This is scary when you're, when you're experienced and know what you're doing. <laughs> okay, it's always scary because someone's life is on the line. So I think what Dr. Singer says is important, even when you're really skilled at doing a suicide risk assessment, we all know that suicide risk assessments even are not 100%. So, you know, is it possible for you to miss something? Yes, which is one reason why almost every time we do this, we consult with another colleague. That's right. That And why? Because you could have missed something because it helps you to have confirmation about how you're assessing it if more than one person's thinking about it. And also particularly because in our case, I'm, I'm sort of the backup to the backup because it actually helps that I'm not in the case because I can see things that you don't see. It's, it's act, I'm actually able to, to step back a little, bit, a little bit more because it's not my client. And so what we try to do is triage this and then we have some steps and protocols What's really helpful, I think what Dr. Singer is saying, is we have a protocol we follow. Mm-hmm. So that in the middle of the crisis, we're not figuring out, what am I doing? Go get the protocol. <laughs> and I told people, don't memorize the protocol. <laughs> go get it because yep. you just want to go step by step. Did you do this? Yes. What's the next step? It really helps to ground you. And that way, we're all, we all know we're covering our bases. And our primary goal is to keep the person safe. That's what we're trying to do here. So it's the same thing yeah. if you're doing this in your faith community, but don't do it by yourself. It's really great. It's good to have two and sometimes three ears and eyes on this. Yes. And you can't find those two and three other ears in the moment. It right. has to be set up in advance. I completely agree. Yeah. So that in our clinic, we have a system set up about who's the first call, who's the second call, who's the third call. Um, I work with this great group in Memphis. They've been doing this, I think, almost 20 years now. It's called the Black Church Suicide Conference. They do it every other year. They started this because uh, it's our Bishop Young and um, William Young and Reverend Diane Young. They have this church in Memphis called the Life Center, the Healing Center, excuse me. And they had a member of their church complete suicide on their front lawn in front of a cross. Hmm. They were absolutely devastated. Hmm. So... What did they do? They called myself and Donna Barnes, who was the head of the National Organization of People of Color Against Suicide. We went out there. The first year we went out there, there were about 30 people came to this conference. 
So we were sitting there. It was preaching to the choir. We were talking to people who were already gung-ho about this. <laughs> and I said, you know, you guys got to figure out a way to get people to talk about this. Don't do it at church. Have a barbecue or something. and just But just get, just get people to talk about it. Okay, now here we are almost 20 years later. This, this uh, conference is about 500 people come from wow. all over. And so I think what Dr. Singer said earlier is, is so important. Don't wait to have a crisis. Don't wait to have a death to talk about this. If you don't think somebody in your, in your community is suicidal, you're missing it. They're just mm. not telling you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So you, that's one reason why you got to talk about it. It doesn't just have to be, when we're talking in your church yesterday, I said, we're not going to just talk about this because it's Mental Health Month. We have to talk about it. Yeah, you know, there's May. October is, is Depression Awareness Month. But we have to talk about depression all year long. Depression yeah. is the most disabling con- condition in the world. So, mm-hmm. And it's one of the most common mental health challenges. So why would we just pick October to talk about that? As if people aren't depressed in September and June, they are. So we have to talk about it all the time. Right. So let me ask, uh, as we're talking about being prepared kind of on the front end, uh, we've mentioned a few resources of trainings people can bring in. We've mentioned QPR and a few others. What are some some other good ones and we can toss links to all these in the show notes obviously so don't feel free uh, don't feel like you have to scribble down notes right now but what are some other good trainings that I could bring in if I'm you know because we have a, a fair amount of pastors or youth pastors that listen to this show because they want to be more knowledgeable about mental health mm-hmm. um, so what are some where should I go who should I find who could I bring in what what resources would you guys recommend I would definitely recommend, as I said earlier, the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. There's also a really good um, group, Nash, the National Action Alliance for Suicide, which is probably, in my experience, and Dr. Singer, you can correct me, is probably the biggest coalition of people who are interested in prevention suicide that I've ever participated in. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. It's got, their, their website has every nuance about suicide prevention you could ever think of. There's suicide <laughs> prevention for juvenile justice system. There's uh, suicide prevention strategies for social media. There's suicide pre- I was on the faith-based task force, and I wear two hats. I was on the faith-based task force and the research prioritization task force. But there's, there's, they also have a wealth of information. There's a program out now called Zero... Um, Zero called, suicide. Yeah, thank you. Zero suicide. Mm-hmm. They have a great campaign um, that's um, being run, you know, also by uh, by SAMHSA and SP, uh, SPRC, and they have lots of toolkits that are available. Both of those have faith based initiatives on them as well. Um, what else? You know, um, and I'll I'll just throw out like I I think that. Um, you know, some of the specific programs you could like mental health first aid is a specific mm-hmm. program. QPR is a specific program. Right. Um, there's a, there's a program called assist. Right. Which I just is a, assist, right. Yeah. Which is a specific program. Now all these programs cost some money and they take some time, but as we've said, the, this is, you know, having to pull together money is, is always a challenge, but the the cost both to the community um, and to the, the, the people around them when somebody uh, dies of suicide or is uh, sort of in an active suicidal crisis is, is enormous. Mm-hmm. And so um, doing this prevention stuff is really important. Now, uh, Dr. Moloch, I don't know, is there um, – 
you have developed suicide prevention programs, uh, a suicide prevention program specifically for adolescent African American adolescents that's right. church based. But is there a specific kind of like QPR for churches? Because uh, I don't know of anything that's been not that I know of. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because even our program, we need to get it evidence. We need to do the research behind mm-hmm. it. We need to get funding to do the research yes. <laughs> so we can make it evidence-based. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah get those cheek is, swabs going. Right, yep, which, right. Is, which is uh, challenging. But I think QPR, I would suggest only because QPR is pretty adaptable in any, any context. It's not – you can contextualize that. And so let me encourage that, too. So those who, who are on the – listening who are in faith-based communities, you can always tweak these and contextualize them to your um, your faith-based community. The other one I would really advocate is Sources of Strength, which is the one I said earlier that is um, uses peers. It's similar to QPR, but it's much more focused on having the leaders um, and the sort of norm changers are actual peers as well, which I think is a really good idea. They've done it mostly in school systems, but I think it could be easily adapted for a church environment or a faith-based community as well. Um, and that, there are probably other ones out there. There are other ones out there. I think SAMHSA and SP, SPRC both have um, links to websites that talk about evidence-based programs. So I also just want to piggyback. These programs do cost money, but I also would say, what's the price you want to place on the youth's lives? And to me, that's priceless. So, you yeah, know, have yep. fish fry and pay for it that way. But mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and this is something else that I'll say. Like so, so if you're if you're in a, a faith community and um, you're thinking about these these programs, reach out to the local American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, call the Suicide Prevention Resource Center and say, "Hey, I'm in such and such a town. We're looking to do this. Do you know of somebody that's already running this program?" Because right. that's the other thing. Like there could be somebody that's – there's a training that's going on and you could piggyback, right? right? You could participate. You could also reach out and say who is in the local university that is uh, – has um, sort of a scholarship expertise in uh, suicide prevention. Right. And you could talk to them and, and partner with them because – you know, and Dr. Moloch can, can probably speak best to this, but there is – in general, there's not a whole lot of research on suicide, but there's certainly not in faith communities. And so opportunities to do evaluations, to follow up the whole range of, of scholarship on um, suicide prevention in faith communities, I think is a really important area. And so being willing to partner with uh, universities and, and researchers um, would, would be an amazing gift to the rest of sort of the world, but specifically faith communities, if you say, we want to embark on this and we're willing to partner with somebody um, to look into, is this effective? What works? What doesn't work? Things like that. I think that's so important. I think partnering, because I think, for example, in the university, there are, universities would love to have their graduate students do this because this could be, for example, we have a community a community um, site program, two classes. This could be a project for our students mm-hmm. to evaluate your program which will cost you nothing <laughs> because <laughs> right. students want to do it. We want to do it and you want to do it. So that's not yeah. going to cost you any money. And as you said, we might have, we might already have the program because we might be, for example, training our students to do QPR assist. So we may already have the program, but then it would cost you nothing. Yes. So good. 
Well, hey, thank you guys both for being here. If you want to connect with Dr. Jonathan Singer, you can find him uh, at socialworkpodcast.blogspot.com or on Twitter at S-O-C-W-O-R-K podcast, uh, as well as actually listening to the Social Work Podcast, or you can pick up this book, Suicide in Schools, on Amazon. Dr. Moloch, is there anywhere online that people could connect with you if they want to? Sure. They can connect with me at uh, my email, smo. L-O-C-K-S, Moloch, at gw.edu. Let's see. I actually have a Facebook page, so they can connect with me there. Same email address. Uh, My church, which is belovedcommunity.org. Belovedcommunitychurchmd.org, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. We'll put links to all this in the show notes as well. Uh, If you want to connect with Steve, you can find him at imsteveaustin.com or on social media at imsteveaustin. You can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at robertvore. Either of you or Steve, any closing thoughts for our folks as we finish up here? Hey, thank you both so much for being a part of the show today. This was a a very important conversation and just as fruitful as I thought it would be, if not better. It's great. Thank you for inviting me. This has been fun. This is probably the most fun I've had in a long time. (laughs) Hey, there we go. Dr. Steve and I will have to get touch bases. I was just so excited listening. So I was like, yes, yes, partners. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. (laughs) Glad we can make some connections here. Thank you. You all have a, a great day. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.